Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. It's good to be back on the air. I know it had probably been at least a good five or six days uh, since I last um, spoke to you all. Um, And about six days ago when I was on the air last, uh, we were finishing up Paul Revere's Ride by David Hackett Fisher. I've decided to uh, keep the uh, time machine that we're moving in um, into uh, the American Revolution. However, we will be entering into what is called the um, post-American Revolutionary War era. So our next podcast is going to be discussing about a particular rebellion that happened in um, the newly formed United States. However, this uh, rebellion has been mentioned in many of um, textbooks, school textbooks, that is. However, there really has not been a true, um, a true uh, behind-the-scenes uh, in-depth discussion that I know of about this uh, rebellion. The only thing that I recall learning about this particular rebellion from years ago in um, high school was just a couple of paragraphs and the person's name and what the uh, cause of the rebellion itself was. While all that seemed uh, good at the time, after having read this book back at the start of of this uh, year, I learned far more about this particular rebellious incident versus what I had ever been taught 25 years ago or what I may have learned about the uh, matter 20 years earlier. So what rebellion could I be talking about? It's called Shays' Rebellion. The American Revolution's final battle, written by Leonard L. Richards. This book was written about 18 years ago, but it has a lot of um, relevant information, and it tells a very unique story about how this rebellion alone was the final straw that broke the camel's back under an existing government that simply could no longer function if the if the newly created United States was going to survive not just short term but really an essential for long term. So what could we uh, be learning about in Shay's rebellion more than just a rebellion? Well, how about we start off with a little, with a little bit of an introduction in terms of uh, an introductory um, discussion to what not only are we going to be learning about, but the, um, but the whole history behind um, acts of rebellion. When acts of rebellion have happened throughout the United States' history, one element always prevails. Assuming the instigators whom incite rebellious activities are poor, uneducated people. I think we should be reminded more so that in, um, in light of what took place most notably back in January of this year at the United States Capitol, uh, that insurrection was not caused entirely by those of uh, lower rank society. They came in all different shapes and sizes. That means uh, well-to-do people, typical everyday middle-class people, 
and yes, people of perhaps of lower rank status, but what happened in January was not confined to just one group of people. You know, when I finished the last podcast series on Paul Revere's ride, we had focused on the year 1775, but we also um, focused on the years before 1775 and what led up to um, his um, mission, and that was to alert the townspeople, not just so much that the British were coming, but what are you going to take with my uh, message that I've given to you all? Now, let's, for, let's um, go back about 11 years earlier here real quick. The British um, had always had this assumption that, um, that, the, that their rebel opponents really didn't know much about anything. They probably referred to them as a bunch of um, whiners and complainers, people who um, just could not um, appreciate anything that the mother country wanted to do, except we all know that what Parliament did was not appropriate, and that is imposing legislation upon the colonists without their direct consent. So the British learned things the hard way after shots were heard round the world after battles at Lexington and Concord from April the 19th of 1775. Rebel forces in the eyes of the mother country were viewed as inferior, uneducated, peasants with pitchforks, to being people who were uncivilized when it came to mannerisms and military drill preparations. I believe it's fair to say that for the British, when viewing uh, rebel forces, this we're talking about Massachusetts, because remember, what's going on in Massachusetts obviously isn't impacting, say, Georgia. Why, how so? Well, in 1774, not to get off track, but in Georgia, in that year, 1774, uh, the colony of Georgia is uh, fighting uh, a war against the Creek Indian Nation, um, uh, against the Creek Indian Nation. And who, do, who will they need arms from? England. So not everybody is 100% unified um, come 1775 or even uh, come 1774 when the initial talks began for what would eventually, in the end, come to, as we know, separation from England. So, forward uh, to April of 1775, here we are, shots heard round the world. You know, the rebel forces um, are going up against the mightiest empire in the world, and while, yes, they may not have the fanciest attire on, they may not, many of these men may not have attended fine schools like Cambridge or Oxford or um, any other prominent military school in England where only 20% of the um, of uh, English society could have uh, sent their sons to um, to be educated and go about earning a commission in the king's army. However, um, I do believe it's fair to say that after fighting had ended on April the 19th of 1775, British General Thomas Gage and his inner circle of generals realized that their rebel opponents had greatly exceeded their expectations. For those of you who were with me uh, from the previous um, season of uh, when we did Paul Revere's ride, you know, Lexington was just a 101 um, standoff. Yes, eight of our 
eight rebels lost their lives, but come conquered, that would be a whole different story. The real deal took place at Concord, and the British were the ones on the run, on, on the defensive. They were um, pretty much outmaneuvered from start to finish. So yes, okay, those who may not always be best dressed, they may not have the best mannerisms at times, and how they go about being trained, yes, was opposite from their British counterparts, but at the end of the day, are all those factors going to really matter when you, the mightiest empire, have just been defeated? Nope, it's not going to mean anything. So, rebels can cause trouble, but with proper leadership from within their organizations, the missions alone, big or small, are achievable if the if leadership is um, if the right leadership is there to conduct the missions from start to finish. So, you know, yes, we can always view rebels as being inferior people, but even rebels alone surprise us. They catch our they catch us off guard. Not just in uh, times past, but in times present, and they will probably continue to do so in the future. However, you know, we live in turbulent times, folks, I can tell you that much. But one thing I do know is that um, in the United States, we sadly do have a rise in uh, extremist groups, most notably uh, militia, gr uh, militia groups who are um, affiliated with the extreme right. You know, it's one thing to not be uh, satisfied with how your government is um, functioning, but is it okay to um, to go to extreme measures to um, cause such uproar that that you put the nation, that you put the well-being of all of the greater public as a whole in danger for all the wrong reasons? Well, it's not a problem in the United States. It, it's a problem worldwide. Let's forward uh, to six years later, uh, come late 1781. What's important about um, 1781? Well, we're still fighting a war with England, but the American Revolution is, it's not 100% over, but it's, um, but it's working its way towards, um, towards coming to an end. Uh, General um, Lord Charles Cornwallis, who is in who is in charge of uh, commanding forces in the South for the British, he's on the run. Nathaniel Green, who is the American commander on the American side, has pretty much found every uh, strategy there is now to throw Cornwallis's army off guard, and that is by engaging in irregular style warfare, guerrilla warfare. But all of this. Um, Irregular style fighting forces uh, Cornwallis and his and his men to retreat as far north from their base, being Charleston, South Carolina. They are forced to retreat as far north as Wilmington, North Carolina, and eventually they try to um, leave, but they get um, blocked off at a place called Yorktown, Virginia, which isn't far from where I live. Uh, not far from Williamsburg, 
and my wife and I were there last month, and it was uh, great to be back at the uh, Victory um, Museum at um, or the Yorktown Victory Museum. For those of you who haven't been there, it's uh, very well worth doing. But anyways, let's forward to late 17, 1781. Uh, General um, Lord Charles Cornwallis is uh, surrounded at Yorktown, where American forces, with the assistance from Britain's arch-nemesis France, went about defeating the world's mightiest empire, a.k.a. England. While the British surrender at Yorktown was monumental behind America's achieving independence, it would take another two years, come 1783, when the Treaty of Paris got negotiated, which formally ended the Revolutionary War altogether. Well, why two years uh, longer? Well, number one, there was still fighting going on after uh, the British surrendered at Yorktown, most notably in, in um, South Carolina, and there were still British troops stationed as far north as New York. Uh, let's keep in mind that not everybody just left and went back home right away. How about all the territory that Britain controlled along the Great Lakes? And what we know is the Northwest Territory of Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, Michigan, Wisconsin. You know, all of that has to be straightened out before anybody can just leave and say, okay, we've left, uh, we'll let the victors um, celebrate and um, take over everything that we had in our possession before losing. Uh, that's not the way it um, ended. So, 1783, what besides um, the Treaty of Paris, uh, formerly, which formally ends this um, American Revolution, what happens to uh, George Washington? You know, he's been the commander of the Continental Army from start to finish. Although he uh, did succeed uh, the interim commander, being uh, Dr. Joseph Warren, who uh, lost his life tragically at Bunker Hill. But George Washington has pretty much been the commander of the Continental Army from July of 1775 until the Treaty of Paris being officially signed in 1783. That's about nearly nine years of service. So 1783 marks the year that Washington himself will step down from his post of Continental Army commander. Washington returned to his Mount Vernon estate along the Potomac River, where he yearned for a return to a favorite pastime in conducting agricultural experiments. Hey, Washington loves to farm, and he should be allowed to um, retire peacefully to do what he enjoyed doing before war broke out. While Washington began to show signs of relaxation after stepping down from his Continental Army commander post, trouble, yep, conflict, has found its way once again along the home front. Home front mean, being from within the United States. The conflict it doesn't involve a foreign country now. The conflict is internal, and this is conflict that um, must not be taken lightly. So trouble along the home front is already brewing. For starters, the Articles of Confederation became unstable, to where 13 states ran the show, 
but refused to acknowledge a central government that couldn't do anything without states' consent. Okay, 13 states. Each state has its own currency. Each state has its own laws. Each state um, can pretty much decide for itself uh, what should be regulated and what shouldn't be. Each state could impose taxes upon the other in terms of um, in terms of goods coming into another state or goods leaving out of the, out of one state going into another. So whatever national government there is, folks, it's frowned upon. It's laughed at. There's no respect. I would have thought that, hey, after defeating the mightiest empire in the world, that people would want to show respect. Well, it's not a question of not wanting to show respect. It's also a fear of how much power government itself should have. After all, we were totally against all of the um, policies that Parliament had um, had imposed upon us without our direct consent. So if you've defeated the mightiest empire in the world, how would you go about establishing a network, a, a proper governing network that would allow for uh, its people to be governed effectively and where consent is given, but how to do so without going through so many other loopholes that it leads to uh, conflict and conflict that would make some want to incite a rebellion. So if the government under the Articles of Confederation was dysfunctional, which proved to be true, then why would rebel forces in Massachusetts go so far as to shutting down courts, including an attempt to seize the Springfield Arsenal? You will hear me mention this part again later on, but it's something to think about. Okay, it's bad enough if the current governing system we're living under is dysfunctional, per what I described earlier. Now, all of a sudden, one of the colonies is engaging in conduct that um, is, is not only unbecoming, but if it goes unchecked, it could lead to something be, that um, would exceed people's wildest expectations. George Washington received reports from multiple sources about rebellious activities within Massachusetts. And each finding proved to be true that the nation itself faced grave danger regarding anarchy. You know, George Washington obviously is someone who um, is a firm believer in maintaining order and discipline. I mean, shoot, he had to do that multiple times to keep his Continental Army afloat, um, especially at Valley Forge. Um, but it was more than just Valley Forge. Washington knew that for every victory his army secured in the, in the war, he also had to ensure that his army would stay on the right track even in times of defeat and even in the lowest of lows. And when I think of the lowest of the lows, I think of 1776 and after uh, the disastrous New York campaign, which ultimately, ultimately in the end was pretty much uh, do or die had it not been for Washington's surprise attack 
at Trenton along the uh, Delaware River on Christmas night of 1776. So I believe it's fair to say now that with all these reports Washington's receiving, it's almost as if the man's reliving, um, he's basically having to relive what he was um, faced with 11 years earlier when he wasn't even sure if his Continental Army was going to um, enter into 1777 as an army that would even be in existence. But thanks to those uh, miraculous victories at Trenton and uh, Princeton, those battles were the ones that helped restore morale. While that was great years earlier, for George Washington, um, he's got to wonder now what is going to help restore morale to this young country if nothing can be done now. Well, what was happening in Massachusetts wasn't an isolated matter. But if nothing was done to resolve the existing turmoil, then every other state government within the new United States would succumb to anarchy. Yeah, um, for George Washington, he is someone who um, I know for a direct fact isn't going to sit back and just let, um, let nature take its course. If he did, um, he probably knows that he would never have been able to have forgiven himself. But, you know, wasn't Massachusetts folks supposed to have been setting an example for um, sound government, considering it had been the colony whom laid the foundation for separation from England? Well, you know, Massachusetts, um, in the eyes of the other colonies early on in the conflict, many of the um, people, most notably of Pennsylvania, New Jersey, uh, Delaware, and maybe um, a group of Virginians as well. A lot of people uh, were against uh, what was going on in Boston. They felt that the people of Boston were unruly. Um, after all, mob, the term mob at that time was referred to as an unruly crowd. But most notably the Philadelphians, people from New York, especially New York City, um, New Jersey, uh, Pennsylvania, Delaware, and like I said, parts of Virginia were very much fed up with what was going on in Boston. You know, they didn't like the fact that people were destroying um, shops that belonged to loyalists or Tories. They didn't like the fact that they were uh, dumping chests of tea into the um, Charles River. They didn't like the fact that the people of Massachusetts were causing so much disruption that uh, they never gave it a thought about trying to... Um, consider um, reconciliation with the mother country, even after England had repealed the uh, Stamp Act as well as um, numerous portions of the Townshend Acts, all with the exception of the tea. And even when Parliament pulled troops out of Boston in the aftermath of the Boston Massacre incident. So, yes, wasn't Massachusetts supposed to have been setting an example for sound government considering it had been the colony whom laid the foundations for separation from England. We would like to believe that that was true, but just because Massachusetts was the first to uh, lay the foundations for separation from England, it didn't mean in the post-Revolutionary War era that everything um, was all hunky-dory, 100% perfect, uh, couldn't do anything wrong. Okay, 
well, if Massachusetts isn't setting an example, were there flaws within its state constitution which made a handful of men uncomfortable to where taking up arms against the state was the only viable solution? Well, we will um, delve into that more um, starting with the next podcast session I'm on. But that is something that we are going to need to ask ourselves. Hey, why didn't these... Um, why didn't these men who participated in Shays' Rebellion, why didn't they go before their local legislators to say to them, hey, we don't like what's going on. We don't like what um, the people of Boston whom control the legislature are doing. Uh, why can't you know there be any kind of uh, compromise? Well... We'll get to that question here momentarily, but uh, for starters, uh, who is Daniel Shays? And why did Shays himself and his followers become so embroiled to where acts of compromise weren't sought out with, the Mass with Massachusetts legislators? Those are questions that we will, um, uh, those are just um, a handful of some other questions that we will uh, be delving into uh, when I'm on the air again next. But the at the same time, I mention these questions now because I want you all, my listeners, to understand why the, a, a rebellion has taken place and why, um, why there wasn't a whole lot done to uh, quash the rebellion, um, but how um, it took this particular incident to make other leaders realize that, hey, what we're living under, being the Articles of Confederation, is irrelevant. And if we don't do anything about it now, we may not have a United States of America uh, somewhere down the road in the short distance or in the near distant future. I mean, we're not talking five years from now. It could be a year from now where perhaps uh, the United States may no longer exist if all of this um, rebellious activity goes on to where um, something different won't doesn't come into play to replace this uh, fledgling, or I should say, I should say, a defunct style of government. Massachusetts, however, wasn't alone with conflict during the post-war years, okay? So here we thought Massachusetts was supposed to have been setting an example for sound government, given that it laid the foundation for separation from England years earlier. Well, what are some other states that are... Um, engaging in conflict with one another and are any of these other states going to war with one another over it well let's take uh, states like new york and new hampshire what could they have possibly been fighting over well how about some territory that lies in lies in between the middle of those two states how about uh, what we now know as present day um, state of vermont New York and New Hampshire fought over whom had control to the territory in between being none other than Vermont. Vermont is smack dab in between those two states, folks. Then you have uh, Virginia and Maryland, whom are fighting fiercely over who had the rights to navigate the waters of the Chesapeake Bay for inter- and interstate commerce purposes. Inter, folks, that is going, say, from Virginia to Maryland or Maryland to Virginia, Intrastate commerce being from point A to point B in Maryland or Virginia, for example. But 
it's not so much now who has the rights to navigate these waters, but who has the right to impose duties and taxes upon the other state, even when um, the boats themselves might not fully um, touch the waters of the opposing state. Well, I, I would love to think that George Washington had a peaceful retirement, but his, his retirement didn't last long, folks. Washington's retirement um, wasn't peaceful, but as more conflict ensued among the 13 states, Washington himself knew he could no longer sit on the sidelines hoping for a miracle, a.k.a. reconciliation, to take place. Yes, who wouldn't want to see states reconcile their differences, but even if they did, who's not to say that there could be another conflict uh, within a couple of months after the previous conflict ended? And if another conflict, some conflict emerges between New York and New Hampshire or um, Virginia and Maryland, or even let alone Rhode Island and Connecticut, if a, if a conflict brews between any of those states, is it going to be any worse than the previous one? And what, what ramifications would those conflicts have, not only in the present, but also for the future? So from late 1786 into early 1787, Massachusetts had become a hotbed of political unrest as mob crowds ranged from 200 to 1,000 men whom shut down courts in five counties. We're not talking one county, folks. Five counties. Five county courts were closed along with a failed mission to seize a federal arsenal at Springfield in Springfield at the Springfield Storehouse where, where New England's uh, military weapons were stored. You know, it's bad enough when there are uh, disputes at the local level, but the fact that um, mob crowds as low as 200 up to 1,000 men were capable of doing the unthinkable, and that is shutting down courts in five counties, Many of y'all are thinking to yourselves, why would they do this? Well, we're going to learn more about that um, starting in the next podcast and onward. Uh, so definitely fasten your seatbelts um, for uh, more information to come. But we must keep in mind that prior to uh, going to war with England, no one had ever um, shut down um, a court system within their own um, state or colony, for that matter. But why now? Well, even in post-war years, people's attitudes can change greatly on a variety of things. And when it comes to policies that um, are no longer relevant from within your own state, it can really tick people off. And But that's not to say, though, that um, those who are unhappy... They, for all we know, they could have tried other uh, measures. And when, and the longer they get ignored, and the longer their lives don't matter, people are going to take measures into their own hands, even if it means doing something that uh, could land um, a particular individual or a group of individuals in jail. Uh, the bottom line is, if their voices aren't heard then yes, there are people who will go to drastic measures to get their words out and to uh, stand up for those who simply have not been allowed to uh, speak their mind 
over what is deeply concerning them. So George Washington's probably got to wonder now, have a lot of people's voices in Massachusetts been deprived? And if so, it's been allowed to get this um, far out of control where now five county courts have been shut down. The reports of continuous uncertainty in Massachusetts led Washington to wonder what could happen next, most notably the potential for government overthrow from within. Not just in Massachusetts, but elsewhere. And then whatever existing central government there is under the Articles of Confederation, if that goes bye-bye, <laughs> yeah, it uh, it's a very, very um, dangerous uh, situation, folks. So... George Washington didn't base his decisions on how to proceed forward by himself, but rather he sought the assistance of a fellow Virginian in James Madison, whom strongly urged the elder statesman, a.k.a. George Washington, to leave retirement. James Madison must see something in George Washington that a lot of other people know, but at the same time, Madison might also be envisioning something even greater for Washington. Shays' rebellion of 1786 was more than just rebellion alone in Massachusetts. The incidents alone did meet with partial success, and that is um, closing down five county uh, courts. But even with this partial success, it did... Um, rattle a lot of nerves not only in the not only in men like George Washington and James Madison but how about Alexander Hamilton a former American Revolutionary War officer who served under George Washington to sage men or I should say wise men like Benjamin Franklin to reconsider how our young nation's existence must be preserved come long term for George Washington, this was the moment to seize, considering everything he had represented throughout the Revolutionary War. Well, you know, this is um, another um, golden opportunity for Washington to shine. But he's got to take what he uh, built upon from the past, being his um, years as commander of the American Revolutionary War, to now go forward and um, do something that will um, help bring the people from all 13 states together to come up with a better solution, not just a, a better solution for what's existing in the present, but how about a better solution for long-term governing? America was in need of reform which included a strong national government, one that could maintain and preserve order to protecting property holders like Washington himself. Now, yes, George Washington has a lot of property, but protection of property isn't going to be just confined to those who are well-to-do. Even those who own 15 to 20 acres of property, they, they ought to be entitled to have their property protected as well. They shouldn't be forced to live in fear every day of, of uh, wondering whether or not some outside group is going to uh, take a hold of their property and not only seize it without their consent, but perhaps put their, 
put their greater family in um, danger to where the family isn't 100% sure if they'll live to see the next day. But this um, need of reform also not only entails a strong national government, but how about uh, reforming government to where to where um, an army needs to be maintained, an army that could also go about suppressing future rebellions. Because without an army, how can you go about suppressing any other future would-be rebellious uh, activities? So, this is, as I said before, this is not a Massachusetts problem. This is a problem impacting the greater young United States. So this is America's story, folks, of how her people came to action through rebellion, but how future acts of internal rebellion would be able to go about getting thwarted in our young republic's early history. Well, I hope all of you will find Shays' rebellion to be very um, fascinating. I think you all will. And that's why I feel it is important to discuss this period of time because we've all been led to believe that after the British surrendered at Yorktown that our forefathers went right back to work and said, hey, let's come up with a newer system of government and build upon our successes from fighting. And once we build this new system of government, everything else will be fine to where we won't have to worry about anything else. Remember, folks, even after the surrender at Yorktown, people were still hesitant about how much power leaders should have. And, you know, it's one of those struggles that, um, that people um, dealt with day in and day out. But when it comes to rebellious activities, such as trying to overthrow a government, like in the case of Massachusetts, perhaps the possibility that had these rebels had it their way, they could have uh, overthrown the state government. They could have perhaps tried to take out um, leaders of the opposition. These are the dangers of extremism, not just on one side of the political spectrum, but on the other. This is a classic example of where uh, extremism at one point got the better hand, but had it not been for the sage men, the wise men like George Washington, James Madison, Benjamin Franklin, Alexander Hamilton, even Roger Sherman, whom had signed three other previous documents and would go on to sign the U.S. Constitution, had it not been for those men who saw what needed to be done in terms of reform, I'm not sure what would have replaced the United States, but I don't see how the United States could have ever been united going forward had rebellious activity not been put down to where replacing a fledgling government, you know, think about it, if this fledgling government that was in existence had not been replaced, I'm not sure what else could have been been replaced that would have um, made it any more effective than what we have had today that's been in existence for just over uh, 233 years, a.k.a. the U.S. Constitution. So I look forward to being back on the air again next. 
And when I'm on the air next, we're going to talk, uh, we're going to more than likely be doing a two-part series on defiance. We're going to learn about the origins of how this rebellion came about. And we're going to learn um, some about Daniel Shays. But we're going to uh, learn a little bit more about Massachusetts. After all, when we think of Massachusetts, we tend to think of Boston. We tend to think of like Marblehead, Salem, Cape Cod. I don't know why I say Cape Cod, but I, when we think of modern day uh, stuff in terms of tourism or just places in general, we tend to think of a few places in, one in, an, in a particular state that tend to get um, a lot of attention. But what we will be learning about is uh, the different um, regions of Massachusetts that were impacted by rebellious activity, but how one part of the state is heavily concentrated in terms of um, not being forgotten, but when you live in another part of the state and you are forgotten, yeah, it does take on a whole different meaning in terms of whether or not you feel valued. So, thank you again for um, letting me uh, present to you all the introduction to Shays' Rebellion, the American Revolution's final battle. I look forward to being back on the air again with you all, and I say once again thanks to all of you who have been faithful listeners of my podcasts, and if any of you all out there uh, know of people who want to podcast, well, tell them to come to Anchor. I've said it before, I'll say it again. It's free, the opportunities are limitless, and the results go beyond the sky's ceiling. Take care and stay safe.